Timothy chapter 2. Are we good to go, Michael? Thank you. Let me start with some anecdotes here, or stories. Um, my kindergarten t- in school and educational experience, uh, seventh and eighth grade were the most horrid times, um, now known as middle school, uh, in my days known as junior high, and uh, in seventh grade, Beth Butler was my English teacher, and I lucked out and didn't get my mom for English. My mom was also an English teacher. Praise God I got Miss Butler, and uh, I loved her so much that I had a nickname for her, and her nickname was Bud, and uh, in fact, so I called her Bud, and she allowed that in class, and she called me Bud, and that woman taught me English, and by the way, grammar and English are, are like my favorite things now and my favorite subject. Um... And I'm Facebook friends with Miss Butler, and, and we share uh, notes, and she still calls me Bud, and I still call her Bud, and I'm going to share this message with her. What a great woman. Then in eighth grade, um, I had Christine Walker for math, uh, who was known as the most difficult math teacher in the school, and somehow I got put in her class. Uh, one of my classmates was her son, so I really didn't want to have her for class because I was friends with one, one of her children. But I got Mrs. Walker. And um, again, kind of the math teacher who's feared, right? Most schools have that. And, and, and furthermore, math was always my worst subject and still is. I wish, I wish I was good at math, and I'm just not. Uh, it used to frustrate my dad to death, who was uh, an engineer, that I, I was terrible at math and I hated it. And then I got Miss Walker. And this woman taught me math. Uh, probably, you know, some of the, the times the hardest teacher supposedly is the best teacher. Uh, and that was the case with uh, Mrs. Walker. And not only did she teach me math quite effectively, but uh, in seventh and eighth grade, I was quite the rebel and voted class clown uh, in middle school and in high school. I had that title, praise God, lots of fun. And Miss Walker laid down the law on me in a way that was effective. I was a total rebel in every other class, including my own mom's class, who in class slapped me once. And Miss Walker, the feared math teacher, kept me under authority in an effective way. So tonight we address the subject, should a woman preach or teach in the church? Should a woman preach or teach in the church? Which is not the question, can a woman preach or teach? Mrs. Butler and Mrs. Walker could teach. It's not a question of ability. It's a question of, should a woman preach or teach? And notice the narrowness of the question. In the church. I'm not talking about in the middle school. I'm not talking about in the home. I'm talking about in the church. On your sheet, if you want to follow along, there's handouts in the back. Number one, why address women in ministry? Number one, the scripture addresses that issue. Um, What the scripture says is true and it's good for all. Number two, right now we're in a study of systematic theology. And part of the study of systematic theology is leadership in the church. And I really believe rightly understanding church leadership is of great importance for the health in in the church. Uh, Also, the age in which we live makes this issue all the more necessary to address. 
because the, the practice of women pastors and women preaching in the church is an escalating practice. You see, there's, this is from a Barna study that says one of every 11 Protestant pastors is a woman, triple as many as 25 years ago. So if that, if that statistic is anywhere close to being true, this is an escalating issue. And I know just in the time that I've been in the Southern Baptist Convention, the issue is escalating. Uh, last year, I was shocked that a Southern Baptist church, the pastor gets up on Sunday morning and says, today it's Mother's Day, so my mother is going to preach for you. I mean, that just shocked me. Uh, and then I came to understand, well, this is becoming a common practice in Southern Baptist churches. Um, furthermore, recently you may have seen, if you pay attention to such things, uh, Beth Moore recently started kind of a, or engaged in a battle with words on Twitter uh, with a theologian named Owen Strand. Uh, Owen Strand uh, wrote an article which is essentially, to my understanding, a, a defense and explanation of what is the historic Christian teaching, uh, which some people would say that's an arrogant way to put it. Uh, that's, I'm going to try to refer to it that way tonight, but uh, Beth Moore uh, essentially went on the attack on Owen Strand for, for presenting this, and, and I'm hoping unbeknownst to her and, and giving her some grace. I think it's unbeknownst to her. Uh, she referenced a liberal, a Bible denier in her defense uh, of her position, which was concerning, uh, really concerning. Uh, Beth Moore advocates women preaching. Uh, she's become very clear, especially in recent days, on that position. Not necessarily women being a pastor. She's been a bit evasive on that, but very clearly. And, and, and Beth Moore is wildly popular. Uh, so you may not, so I love John MacArthur. John MacArthur, I think, is a, a great and a well-known Bible expositor, new, author of numerous books. If John MacArthur came to the, the, the coast of Mississippi and, and went to the Coliseum and did an event, he would not draw nearly the crowd Beth Moore would. Beth Moore is way more popular than John MacArthur. So why address it? Those are some of the reasons. Some other influences regarding this issue, uh, just to be cognizant of. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. The influence of liberalism. Uh, liberalism I'm defining here as a denial of the authority of Scripture in Christian circles. Uh, it, it has become more common, especially since the early 1900s, for people to claim to be Christian, to claim to be in a church, and deny that the Bible is the authority. That is the position of whole denominations, and certainly leaders within many denominations. And the reality is, if you question or deny or redefine the Bible's authority, that's going to affect how you apply the Word of God. And, and quite frankly, what's known as the mainline denominations, the denominations that um, question, deny, or try to redefine the authority of the Bible are the denominations that wholesalely accept women being pastors. Also, there's the influence of culture. The pressure to conform to the beliefs and practices of the contemporary culture. We all know this is a pressure. Christians face pressure to fit in with the world and with modern thinking. Christians and churches face social opposition if they don't conform to the world's standards. So that's hard. Nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody enjoys that. And uh, essentially, more and more, as our 
beliefs about the Bible are out of step with the world, more and more pressure is coming from the world for us to change what we believe. That's a pressure. It's an influence. The influence of pragmatism, the philosophy of valuing what works. Well, my mom has some real wisdom. This woman is an incredibly wise woman, very good communicator. My goodness, she could really benefit by, by teaching our church what works. I mean, this is going to draw a crowd. People argue that holding to historic biblical teachings and practice won't work in this age. A leader of a well-known Southern Baptist Association made that argument to me, arguing what the Bible says about this won't work today, which I utterly reject. There's, there's also the influence of individualism and self-determinism. Uh, you know, I can do what I want, how I want, when I want, and if you challenge me, you're intolerant. And of course, with this issue, should a woman preacher teach in the church, there's the influence of sin where historically, I hope we all know and understand, women have been abused throughout history. That's just a historical reality. Women have faced abuse from the world and from the church. Women have been abused in church. And there are wrong views of authority that have plagued the church. Next page, some, some other considerations when addressing this issue. Starting with what's most important, I think, to the Christian, and especially to us, these are some convictions and other considerations as you work through issues like this. The authority of Scripture what we believe about God's word, that, that God's word comes from God, and, and part of this is what God says is best, what God says is for our good. I believe what the Bible says about the role of women in the church and in marriage is good. I think it's for the flourishing of women and for human flourishing, and, and essentially what God's word says, God says. Uh, of course, one of the one of the, the arguments, and really the, the the most popular argument that would argue for a woman being a pastor and teaching in the church, the most popular argument for the text we're going to look at tonight would say, "Well, Paul the apostle was out of step with his with today's modern time. Paul on this issue was wrong." That's that's the that's the most common way. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is dealt with. Not the only way. There's a bunch of ways it's dealt with. That's the most common of those who believe a woman should be able to be a pastor of a church or should be able to preach in the church. Their, their position is, Paul's wrong on this because he's out of step. He's conforming to his day and time. In that day and time, they had a different view of women than we have, and he's just wrong on this. So we, to me, that undercuts the whole authority of Scripture. Because this isn't just Paul's opinion, this is the word of God. Okay, so that's the authority of Scripture. Next level would be the interpretation of Scripture. How we understand what the Bible means. And, and just a couple things about that. Number one, two contradictory interpretations cannot both be right. So what we try to do is, we try to use grammatical tools, like some of the ones I learned in English class from Miss Butler, we use grammatical tools and rules to seek the correct understanding of Scripture. Which, by and large, Scripture is very clear. Scripture is written and meant to be understood. That's, by and large, the case with Scripture. 
And the reality is there are varying interpretations that exist on this issue. So there's the authority of Scripture. There's the interpretation of Scripture. The next layer will be the application of Scripture. Okay, you, you believe this about Scripture. You think it means this. Well, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? How does it affect our practice? And the reality is you're, what you believe about Scripture and how you interpret it will affect practice if you're consistent. And different Christians apply this one in different ways. Just some common terminology. This is just for your info. These, this is common terminology in Christian discussions. Complementarian holds that some restrictions exist for women serving in ministry. Egalitarian holds that no restrictions exist for women serving in ministry or serving as a pastor. That's just, if you read stuff online, you'll, come, you'll pr- probably come across those terms. That's just the way this issue is framed. Okay, so before we get into the text and the issue more, how you address this issue or approach it, which I think you sh- is the way you should approach any theological issue or biblical issue, like a Christian. Th- this is a conversation that just easily gets shut down. Um, and, and we don't want that. We certainly don't want that within the church, where there are going to be some varying viewpoints on, on lots of different issues. And probably even this one. You don't want to shut down conversation. I don't, want, I don't ever want to shut down conversation in the way I explain something or in the way that I say something. I know I'm subject to error. And what I want to try to do is sit down with the Bible and try to explain why I believe what I believe or why I do what I do. So, so the, hopefully people understand that. But how do you approach it on our sheet? By pointing one another to God's word and seeking to understand what it teaches. This is what we all want to learn the Bible. None of us have a perfect mastery or understanding of the Bible. We can learn from one another. We can converse with one another. And when it comes to issues like this, we point to the scripture. Say, look what this says. Have you thought about this? We be committed to Christian virtues as we engage in discussions about the Bible. So, right, the scripture says a lot about how we should live and how we should engage. On our sheet, first of all, be loving and willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the other person. That's a good way to enter into a conversation. I'm to love this person to the extent that I'm willing to sacrifice myself for them. Being loving does not mean that we compromise the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. So it doesn't mean I'm going to give in to something I disagree about, especially something in the Bible, but it certainly does affect the way I approach the issue. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is hard to live out, isn't it? It doesn't mean I compromise, but it does mean I'm going to try to love this person. The next part, to be humble and recognize that we've all had and have errors of belief and practice. I've had lots of errors in my beliefs that I've had refuted and contradicted and clarified by Scripture through the years. In fact, I think life is just one process of studying Scripture and coming to a better understanding of what God says. I think, and I think we're all always in that process. And, and everybody's at a different place in that process. And so I recognize, my goodness, I've been wrong about so many things, and still I'm certain I'm still wrong about things. So therefore, I'm going to be willing to listen to you 
to try to understand and better read the Bible. And I'm certainly going to accept the possibility I might be wrong. To be patient and keep teaching the truth of the Word of God when people don't understand it. To be kind and able to disagree with other Christians and not be disagreeable. I think this is something we've all got to be able to do because we are going to disagree about different issues in the Bible. Again, some of that gets to how, how narrowly do you want to define yourself as a church? Does everybody have to agree on the end time stuff? Which has been debated and disagreed about since <laughs> you know, at least the third century or fourth century. Are, are we going to have an allowance? I, I believe there are some issues. Now listen to the, the sum. There are some issues we've got to be okay disagreeing about and maintain fellowship in the church. Now what those some issues are is a very important discussion for another time. I think the, this issue of women in ministry fits that, that paradigm. I think this is an issue you've got to recognize and understand. There's going to be various ways people think this should be applied in the church, and that's okay. The last part's important, last line. Be resolute in your convictions and speak the truth of God's word. That's, that's a... 2 Corinthians 13, 8, we can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. Philippians 3, 16, only hold fast to what you've attained. So if you're convinced of something biblically, you should hold that until someone convinces you otherwise from the Bible. And you hold it with humility. You hold it with kindness. You hold to what the Bible says until you're convinced otherwise from the Scripture. First Timothy chapter 2, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all then, so notice the words first of all, Paul is now transitioning to deal with some issues, and what he deals with in First Timothy 2, I'm going to start with just giving you an outline of it, first of all he deals with men disrupting the church by not praying for all people, that evidently there was a view in the Ephesian church that some people would not be saved, <laughs> namely rulers that they didn't like, likely. And Paul is, makes very clear, no, you should pray for everybody. Um, you, you shouldn't disrupt the church by, by not praying for all people. And then also in chapter 2 and verse 8, some men were being quarrelsome in the way they prayed. Right? Using the prayer as a means of quarrelsomeness. My goodness, Lord, I just prayed John Presswood would agree with me on this issue. God, please do a work in John's heart. Why can't he just agree? What's wrong with him? There's a way a church leader could pray and be quarrelsome. Of course, that's just a joke. I think John knows that. I hope you all, the rest of you know that. Men were disrupting the church in that way. Then he moves into the ways women were disrupting the church. First of all is with dress. I'm not going to cover this tonight, but I put you some extensive notes on there because this is an issue that a lot of people have questions about. One of the ways women were disrupting the church in Ephesus was with their dress. And so that's on there. And then we get to the prohibitions we're going to look at tonight. Women not teaching or exercising authority over men. And then you have the requirements of the overseer, the requirements of the deacon. Now look at the end of chapter 3. 
verses 14 and 15. So this is the conclusion of this little section. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that. So this is the reason Paul's writing this. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So at least chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I think by implication probably the whole letter, Paul is writing this letter so you can know how to behave in the church. So he has limited the scope that he's discussing to the church. We're talking tonight about should a woman preach or teach in the church. That's the scope of the discussion for tonight. I think that's the scope of what he addresses here. Let's begin in chapter 2, verse 11. Let me just read 11 to the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Quietly, with all submissiveness, I think describes quietly. And then the prohibition, I think, is going to explain further what he means here. With all submissiveness means under authority. That word submissive means under authority. Which again, I'll just remind us all, every one of us is under authority. This is how God has created the world. We're all under the authority of God. Every one of us is to be a submitter. We all submit to God. We're under the authority of government. We all submit to government, or should. We're all under the authority, or were at one time, of our families. Right? I was, when I was under my parents' household, I was to submit to them. That's what God called me to do, commanded me to do. In the scripture, you see wives submit to husbands. Here, it says, in the church, let a woman learn quietly. So it's, again, essentially, in the church, she's not the one doing the teaching. She is under authority. Under authority of whom? In this case, I think it's the church leadership. And, and again, I think this statement is further fleshed out in the next statement. Look at the next verse, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I believe two things are prohibited here. The women are prohibited from teaching and exercising authority. I think these are two different things. And, and, and there's been, I believe, quite conclusive evidence grammatically done to show that's what this sentence means. Like, for instance, if I tell Gideon, I do not permit you to sit in the car or drive the car. Or, or if I said it like, I do not permit you to sit in or drive the car. It's a pretty clear sentence. What I've just prohibited is quite clear, grammatically. I really believe this sentence is incredibly clear, grammatically. Which we'll talk about in a minute. Then why is there so much disagreement over this? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there's that same word quiet again. This is what he means by quiet. She doesn't teach men. She doesn't exercise authority over men. You see the little, the, the, the direct object there is man. 
in verse 12. That is a direct object of the two verbs, the two things that are prohibited, teach a man or exercise authority over a man. Both of which, both of these actions, teaching and exercising authority, are the prerogative of the overseers in the church, which Paul's about to go on to describe in chapter 3. Now, what some people do with this is saying, well, this is just a prohibition against a woman being an overseer or a pastor. We'll accept that, but it's okay for a woman to teach. But look at what this verse says. There is a function prohibited here. Not only chapter 3 is going to limit the office of overseer to be a, a husband of one wife, uh, a man. This actually limits the function in the church to not teaching men or exercising authority over men. Now, if you look at all of 1 Timothy, which, you know, it's important to understand the context of the whole letter, the, one of the big issues, there's a lot about teaching in 1 Timothy because in the church Paul is dealing with, there's a lot of false teaching. And so one of the things Paul wants to make very clear in 1 Timothy is it is the prerogative of the overseers, the leaders in the church, to be teaching. That is, that is within the sphere of how they function and what they do in the church. And in fact, if you study 1 Timothy, I believe you'll come to the conclusion teaching is at the heart and center of what the church does, the function of the church. It is at the heart and center of what the function of pastors do. So that's why the only skill qualification of pastors is that they are able to teach. And this function in the church is prohibited from women teaching men. Now, I think if you study 1 Timothy, and this is confirmed by 2 Timothy and Titus, the letters that kind of all go together, teaching is referring to a formal practice in the church. Because one of the issues that enters in is, well, how do you define teaching? I mean, was it okay for your eighth grade math teacher to teach you math if you don't believe women should teach men? Well, again, number one, this is limited to the church. And we're talking here, teaching within the context of 1 Timothy is this formal practice in the church. That's what we're talking about here. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, you find the statement, women should teach. Women should teach. But it's qualified there by women should teach the younger women, which should be going on. Women should be teaching other women, which, by the way, most women are going to be a better teacher to other women than I am. In ge- I mean, a- an older woman is going to be able to teach a younger woman about being a mom, being a wife, being a teenage girl. I can't teach a, I, I can t- teach a girl what the Bible says, but a mature Christian woman who knows the Bible is going to probably have a lot better insights and be able to better communicate to a young woman who's a teenager what it means to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ as a teenager probably better than I can. So women should be teaching other women. So this is, not a, this is not an absolute prohibition of all teaching. It gets very narrow. It's in the church, and it's women teaching men. And it's not only teaching, it's also exercising authority, which again is the prerogative of pastors. Now, 
like I said, in general, there's, there's two main arguments that are used against this passage. Number one is, well, you know, Paul's just out of step. He's not enlightened like we are. Uh, he was conforming to the, the status of his day, which, by the way, Paul is not conforming to the status of his day. That is, that is ignorant. And here's what, what I mean. Jews did not permit women to be taught in the synagogue. Jew, you understand? So the Jewish tradition, which we still have, we still have copies of the same kind of Jewish tradition Paul would have been reading. And the Jewish tradition, do you know what it says? It says that better to burn the law than to teach it to a woman. That was the Jewish perspective on teaching women. Better to burn it than to teach women. Paul is totally out of step with Judaism here. Radically out of step. When he says women should learn quietly and in all submissiveness. By the way, the word learn there is the verb form of the word disciple. Where Jesus says make disciples, where where Christians are described as disciples or followers, learners of Jesus, that's the verb form of that word. Women are to be discipled. Women are to be learning in the church. Again, so Paul is not out of step with his time. In fact, he's quite different from his Jewish roots on this issue. When he believes and recognizes women are of equal value in the church and women should be taught. <clears throat> so, so people just say, you know, Paul's unenlightened. He's out of step. Number two, people will say, that, that's just culture. That's just Paul's culture, and he's reflecting his day and time. Well, look at the very next verse where Paul offers explanation why this is the case. Why should women learn in quietness and submissiveness, not teaching men, not exercising authority over men? Well, here's why. Verse 13, 4. Here's the reason for this. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, do you see why that's not cultural? He roots this reason, this function, this prohibition of function for women in the church not based on anything cultural like, well, this is what the Greeks or the Romans think, or this is how the Romans have always done things, or this is what the Jews believe, or this is how we grow up, grew up. No, it's rooted in creation. And there's something about creation that speaks to this issue, that there was an order of creation and, and, and purposes in creation. The man was formed first, and man was intended to lead and protect his wife. So that, that argument, I think, is totally fallacious based on this explanation right here in the passage. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Obviously, the man became a transgressor too. He bore, his, he bore guilt along with the woman, but, but she was deceived. And Adam was formed first. So it's not based on cultural differences. Now look what he goes on to say. Uh, Another difficult text to understand, 15. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing. It's a strange statement. The word saved almost always means saved in the New Testament. I think this is talking about salvation, which makes it even more challenging. What were we just talking about? Adam and Eve. Do you remember what God told Eve in the curse? Well, he gave her a promise of encouragement that she is going to have an offspring. She's going to have a seed, and what's that seed going to do? Satan will bruise his heel, but he, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the devil. The devil, which essentially led to all this bad stuff happening, it's, this, it's through the seed of the woman that what's going to happen? Salvation. 
I think when it says childbearing, by the way, childbearing is a bad translation. This is a singular verb. It means it's the childbirth is a better translation. And I don't know why they don't translate it that way. It's not the function of childbearing. The word here is the childbirth. It's a reference to Genesis 3 in the context of Adam and Eve. It's a reference to salvation for women. So, so again, you, and, and furthermore, you could see how it could be confused. Okay, women should learn quietly in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Adam was formed first, then Eve. The woman was deceived, became the transgressor, but she'll be saved through childbearing. What Paul is trying to clarify here is, because even though there's different functions for women in the church, this does not mean that women won't be saved. Just, just so you're clear, which again, some of the Jews would not have been clear on, very likely. So he is making clear this, this point, even though women are prohibited from this function in the church, they'll be saved through Jesus if they continue, just like any Christian, if they persevere in the faith. That, that's what true salvation looks like. On your sheet, I gave you a, a cross-reference there for Galatians 3.28. This passage in Galatians talking about the gospel and, and showing how the gospel applies equally to all races and, all, and, and men and women. There's neither Jew nor, nor Greek. There's neither bond nor Scythian. There's neither male nor female. It's not saying there's not differences between us. It's just saying under salvation, under the gospel, there is total equality in salvation. And again, you could see how that could be confused after Paul had just said this thing about this functional difference. So lest there be confusion, just like Eve would be saved through the childbirth, every single person, every single woman who believes the gospel will be saved through Jesus if they persevere in the faith. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, which is a cross-reference to this. 1 Corinthians 14, which again I think helps inform what we just looked at. And what we just looked at helps inform 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35. Let me remind you of the context here. 1 Corinthians is a book primarily of rebuke and correction. Almost everything addressed in 1 Corinthians is there's something wrong in the church, and here's the, 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 the correction of what's wrong. The entire book reads like that. 1 Corinthians 14 is refuting the way the gifts of tongues and prophecy are operating in the Corinthian church. Now, one of the neat things about chapter 14 is you get the clearest picture of what it looked like in a New Testament church when the church came together for worship. You know, if you go to the New Testament and try to say, what does a a New Testament worship service look like? You don't have much to go on. What you've got to go on is is elements of worship, like preaching, prayer, singing, you know, fellowship, Lord's Supper. You've got elements, but, but actually, okay, what did they do? 1 Corinthians 14 is your clearest picture of that, and it is a chapter of rebuke. But you learn a lot about Christian worship through this rebuke. Keep in mind, context of the misuse of tongues and prophecy, both of which are speaking gifts in the church. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. 
as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Notice the similarities in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's the, the practice of the church. Remember, Paul wrote that 1 Timothy to, to describe, here's what we should do, here's what you should do when the, to behave in the church. So you have the practice of the church, you have a call for silence on the part of women, same word. And you have the, the context there of, of learning. In this case, learn from their husbands. Now, I don't believe silence here, again, is absolute. Like, I don't think, 1 Timothy 2, I don't think teaching is absolute because women are told to teach women. Here, I don't think silence is absolute. So I I don't think it means when you come together, a woman can't ever say anything. Because I think the scripture instructs all Christians to sing. Not here, but elsewhere. So, so uh, I don't think this can apply to a woman all the time when she's in the church. Silence. I don't think that's what it means. What does it mean? Well, if you read it in context, it means no speaking in tongues for women and no prophecy for women. That's what it means if you read the whole chapter. Prophecy, in my understanding, is, is it... Li- well, just go back and look at the definition of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, which sounds a lot like preaching. So a woman, within the context of the church, is not to be speaking in tongues and not to be prophesying. Now, that's where, again, I would just challenge you. We all have good, we all probably have friends that are Pentecostal or charismatic who believe in the gift of tongues. You know, whatever you believe against, about the gift of tongues, okay, that's a debatable issue. How in the world can you get past this text in this chapter? How can, it not, how can, this, not get it, how can this get any clearer? Do you see what it says? Where, where is this practiced? And how is this practiced? It's practiced by women not engaging in speaking gifts in the church. Uh, but again, I would just, to me, this would be one of my biggest challenges to a Pentecostal or, or, a, or a charismatic friend. What about this? So, so again, my opinion, which is my opinion, and uh, subject to be rejected, I don't think this is hard to understand at all. I just think it's hard to swallow. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man is a clear sentence. In fact, the meaning of the word teach is incredibly clear. The prohibition is unbelievably clear. I think this is just a case of, this is not hard to understand, this is just hard to swallow. It's like election and predestination. It's not hard to understand what the Bible is saying, it's just hard to swallow what the Bible's saying. Um, so, so, so why is there so much dissent over what this means? Or where, where is this view coming from that women should be pastors or women should be preaching? And how does it deal with that prohibition? I don't know. I just think that's an incredibly clear sentence. I just can't get past it. Um, some other important principles of interpretation related to this issue. Number one, to interpret the unclear in light of the clear. The next one's 
more, actually more important, I think, for this discussion, interpret the subjective in light of the objective. And what I mean by that, subjective, in light of the objective, objective what is clear, subjective is what is subject to change. Again, this is my experience in talking with people, and this is pretty common in the discussion of this issue. If you ask a woman pastor why she's a pastor, usually she'll say something like, God called me to do this. Or, uh, you know, again, if I get pressed on this issue by a woman pastor, I mean, I'm not going to, if she wants to know my position, I'll tell her and I'll show her why. But if I get pressed by a woman pastor on this issue, which I have been multiple times, I'll say, look what Scripture says. And you know what she'll say? Well, this is what God has called me to do. Essentially something like, well, you can't refute this. Remember back to that influence of self-determinism. Well, what does the Bible say? Why would God call you to do something he clearly objectively prohibits in the Bible? Uh, or God gifted me to preach. I have a, a friend who was engaged in a dialogue about this issue, and another pastor said to him, Bro, the gospel's being preached and people are being saved, for which we praise God. But does that change this prohibition? No, <laughs> it doesn't change the prohibition. Uh, those are subjective arguments, or a subjective argument that is usually valid. I know particularly in Baptist churches, the men aren't stepping up. I'm sure there's more women in this room than men. I haven't counted, but I'm assuming likely just because that's how it almost always is. Where are the men teaching? Where are the men leading and pastoring, the qualified men? Um, the, the author of Hebrews felt this problem in the group of Christians he was addressing. When The author of Hebrews says, you should already be teaching. So that is a real problem, men not stepping up. We also have to recognize, again, how there is some variance in how the scripture is applied. And some Christians are going to just come down in different ways in how this is applied, like, uh, again, Sunday school or small groups. I don't think it means that women should not ever say anything in that. I, just, I, I think that's too restrictive. Again, though, I can't get past, if, if it is authoritative teaching in the church or sanctioned by the church, I do not permit a woman to teach men. I, I don't see how, I can't get around that. Um, and that's where ultimately, when it comes to practice, pastors have to make decisions that are just not going to please everybody. And, and we recognize pastors are subject to error. Like, what time does the church meet? Should there be solos in the church? These kind of things. Um, I would just say we should draw boundaries for practice where Scripture draws boundaries or where God draws boundaries. And we should prohibit what God's Word prohibits. And we do it humbly, recognizing, hey, I may be wrong here. But I'm just doing the best to understand clearly what the Bible says, and it sure says this. Um, and just some other considerations on this note. If you consider the context of the whole New Testament, Jesus began with 12 apostles, all of whom were males. It's hard to refute that. But women played an important role in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You don't conclude from the Gospels, just because the apostles are all males, the women are unimportant. 
totally wrong to conclude that. Women were very important to Jesus and in his ministry. Again, unlike other Jews or Greco-Romans of the time. That's why the biblical sexual ethic is utterly, utterly different than the ethic of the world in that day and time. To command men in the church to love your wives as Christ loved the church, incredibly, I mean, if you just read what the, the Romans and the Greeks say about women in the marriage relationship, you're going to be like, wow, men are commanded to love them? Radically countercultural in that day and time. Furthermore, there's no examples of women pastors or women preaching in the New Testament. Now, there's, there's scholars who disagree with that. It certainly isn't, there certainly aren't any clear examples of a woman serving as a pastor in a church in the New Testament or of women preaching, carrying out the, the responsibility of pastors in the church. You don't see one instance of that in the Bible, I don't think. Though there's people who disagree with that. So again, where is this view coming from that women should be preaching in the church? I think it's coming from the culture. Uh, the world in which we live. Uh, I, th I think that is shaping the thinking and practice of people today. And again, it's just hard. It's hard to follow through with this. Like, for instance, um, I'm sorry to share this, but I'm going to. Um, I don't, I don't want to be a bad influence on the kids. When I was a kid, my favorite movie was The Untouchables, which I do not recommend for children. Um, I had a pretty depraved upbringing in a lot of ways. The Untouchables was my favorite movie. I could justify that because I loved history. But anyway, my favorite movie. And there's a section in that movie which, again, The Untouchables is dealing with the issue of prohibition, the prohibition of alcohol. And uh, Sean Connery's character, Malone, says to Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner comes to this conviction, you know, it's my job as a government official to get rid of alcohol in the city of Chicago. That was the law in that day and time. That was his job. And uh, Sean Connery's character says, Ness, everybody knows where the booze are. And the point is, everybody knows what's going on. It's just nobody wants to do anything about it. Now, do you know why nobody wanted to do anything about it? Because to do something about prohibition in that day was costly. Because you're going against one of the most powerful men in America if you try to cross him in his own city, Al Capone. So Malone's like, everybody knows where the booze are. And so they come to the door, and, and Malone's like, you want to step through that door? How far, how far are you prepared to go? And the point being, if you cross that threshold, you're entering a world of hurt. And the reality is, if there are some biblical positions that you hold to that I think are incredibly clear, it is going to be costly. It's going to, be, it's going to cost a lot in this day and time in this culture. Just a few other final thoughts. Just to clarify, we affirm the equal value of men and women. Genesis 1.27, men and women are equally created in the image of God. We affirm the differences between men and women, and I believe affirm those differences are good and God-ordained. Differences in function and role do not indicate differences in worth, value, or importance. Limitation of role and function does not indicate reduced worth, value, or importance. So a difference in function does not mean or equal a difference in worth, and it better not. 
For instance, I can't get in my car and drive to Cat Island. It's not made for that. Does that mean that my car is less important than a boat? No, my car is pretty important. It's just it's made for driving on a road. So I have to do with it what it's made for. I'm not going to drive a boat out here on the highway. Why? It's not made for that. Does that speak to its worth or its importance? No, it doesn't. Women are of equal worth and value in the church and obviously to Jesus Christ and to God. If you look at Paul's metaphor for the church in 1 Corinthians 12, this metaphor of the body, the point there is there are differences, differences in gifting, but that doesn't mean any member is less significant. It's God's plan and purpose that there is difference in the church, just like there are differences in sexes. And ultimately, loving one another is the ultimate foil against disagreements in the church. That, that's so important. And that's where, again, how we approach these issues is so important. We've got to be able to love one another even if we disagree. And I want to try to do that. I mentioned earlier Owen Strand's article. Uh, I was reading the article. I was like, I'm definitely going to send this to everybody. So I was going to put it on my Facebook page and encourage people in the church to read it, which I'm very careful about doing. Um, ultimately, I chose not to do that because I felt like it was, uh, I, I totally agreed with all the content of it. It was the historic Christian position presented cogently. I felt like it had a little bit of an edge to it, and that's probably because this issue is so sensitive. I thought it was true, but I thought the presentation of it was just a little too edgy more edgy than I wanted to share with our church. Which speaks to the matter of, especially on this issue, kindness and grace and patience with people who disagree. We affirm, this is something we do need to think about and, and spend more time on. To infer, affirm the important roles of women in the church. Should women serve in the church? Yes, please, women should serve in the church. In fact, I'd want to think more about this, but it seems to me a woman can essentially do everything in a church other than what's prohibited, teaching men and exercising authority over men. Um, so there's a whole host of ways a woman can and should be involved in the church. Women are gifted equally like men by the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the gifts is to serve the body. Women should be serving the body. And just like with men, that's going to look different case by case. There's seemingly few limits and prohibitions, but there are some. And I think the two clearest ones are not teaching men, not exercising authority over men. That's not my opinion. That's what a sentence in the inspired word of God says. This is God's prohibition. And again, I think God knows what's best for women in the church. In fact, you think about the profound influence women do exercise in the church. 
Like, for instance, being what? Does a wife influence her husband? <laughs> yeah. How about the influence of a mother? Why would that be? Certainly not diminished, but why in the world would a woman think that I need to be a formal teacher in the church to have influence? The influ- I believe the, the, the mothers in the church are going to influence their children way more profoundly than I'll ever be. So I'm quite jealous of the influence of a woman in the home. Because I know it's primarily the woman in the home that's going to be teaching the children, and she's going to have way more influence than I'll ever have as a pastor. I think that is without a doubt. Jane Laughlin had more influence over David Laughlin in her home and through what she taught him, and more influence over Amy Laughlin than I would ever or could ever have. I can teach them some sound doctrine and theology, but the influence that she provided them in raising them in a godly home, being a a godly woman is way more profound than the influence I will ever, influ- ever exercise. They don't spend Christmas with me. Or the teacher of a younger woman. Again, I, I think the women in here, any one of you, are going to be more effective at teaching a young teenage girl or a 10-year-old girl. You're going to be more effective than I am in doing that. By and large and in general. Just because you're a woman. You, you know things and understand things in ways that I don't and can't. I can't understand some of the experiences of a woman because I'm not one and never will be one. Or a counselor to others, including leaders. This prohibition is about formally teaching in the church. This does not mean a woman can't or shouldn't counsel or teach a man. Now, I don't think she should do it privately. I just think that's unwise. But, but in my experience here in this church, Shirley Patton is one of the, my biggest counselors. She was one of the first people I met when I came down to Gulfport. She was on the pastor search committee. Her and I instantly had rapport She considers herself a Puritan. I love the Puritans. Um, She she totally affirms and agrees with the position I taught here tonight. And and it wasn't because of that we had rapport. But that's just, again, an example. And, And I'm going to talk with her, which I used to quite often, especially with regard to major changes in the church. I'm going to listen to her counsel. And I'm going to value her counsel. Just because she's a woman doesn't mean that she doesn't have wise counsel to offer me. Just because she's a woman doesn't mean I can't learn something about the Bible, which is my passion in life. I want to learn things from her. Her dad was a... She knows what it means to be a pastor's daughter. I don't know what that means. So, that's just one example, and and there could be others. So... um, Women have an important role to play in the life of the church, including influencing their pastors. All right, any, any questions on that? All right. Okay. 
That's a great question. What is the difference in preaching and teaching? I'll tell you what I think it is. Okay. I think all preaching is teaching. I think teaching is the imparting of truth or information. In 1 Timothy, it's teaching sound doctrine to the church. Okay. That's what we're talking about here in this passage. Teaching is imparting information. Um, and, and in 1 Timothy, what we're talking about tonight is in, imparting sound doctrine to the church with authority. That, I think, is what's, it, what's prohibited from a woman. Okay. All preaching is teaching. All preaching is, by its nature, declaring sound doctrine with authority to people. Not all teaching is preaching. There, there can be teaching wherein, again, there, there are some other definitions. That's why in the context of this passage, I think it's in the church. There's also, you could define teaching out in the parking lot. Gail, help me understand your understanding of this passage. And you walk me through your understanding. I don't think that conversation is forbidden. Okay. And, and furthermore, I think you can teach me something about that. Uh, so, all preaching is teaching, not all teaching is preaching. Uh, does that help? Yeah. Okay, and he had um, both with him, he had four daughters, virgins which did prophesy. Yeah. In King James, a lot of times when it says prophesy, mm-hmm. it means preach. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, essentially, a, a few things about that. You find women called prophets in the Old Testament. It, it's very unusual, like a prophetess, like Deborah. Uh, like in the instance of Deborah, the prophetess, if you read... Judges, where you have this instance, this unusual instance. So number one, it's unusual. And if you look at the example of Deborah, this is a role she does not want to fulfill. She does not want, she wants this other guy. It's his responsibility to carry out this act of leadership, and God uses her to stir him up to do it. So I think you do see women being used like that in the Old Testament. In the book of Acts, one of the characteristics of the book of Acts that you see is it is a time of transition from operations in the Old Testament now to operations in the church. And there are differences. There are differences. So where I would think in the church, over time, things are clarified. um, And what you come to understand in the church is this act of prophecy is prohibited for women in the church. Yeah, in the book of Acts, there's a, tr- there's a transition going on on a whole bunch of issues. Like, for instance, uh, the Jews for, mal- for many, many years had lived under the authority and lived out the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. And now Jesus comes, you know, the, the, the gospel is going forth, calling people to believe in Jesus Christ. The question becomes, well, okay, would, would you have to keep the Mosaic law to be saved? And the answer to that is no. It's a misunderstanding of the law. Well, okay, well, what part of the law do we need to keep? Which becomes a, a massive issue in the New Testament church and really still a debated issue today to some degree. Uh, but they make it very clear that there are parts that, like the dietary codes that have been 
abolished because they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ or the sacrifices. Why are we not offering sacrifices anymore? Moses commanded this. Well, because Jesus is the sacrifice that every one of those things is pointing to. He's the great sacrifice. So what I'm saying is in Acts, you find this transition happening. Another transition you find is the Holy Spirit now indwelling every believer. That is not the case in the Old Testament. And there is a whole bunch of stuff that, that goes along with this transition. Like, for instance, I don't know if I can get this exactly right. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. They believe, they repent, they're baptized, and then they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I may be wrong about that. <laughs> Later in Acts, they believe, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, then they're baptized. Acts 19. They believe, they're baptized, and then after baptism, Paul lays his hands on them, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The way the Spirit operates in Acts is not consistent in some ways. And I think that's part of the re- there's a transition going on. Now, take, for instance, uh, Paul's, pri- Paul's traveling around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, churches are beginning. Acts 14, Paul appoints elders in every church. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, not until later do you get 1 Timothy chapter 3. And later you get Titus 1, and you get the explanation of who these people are. What I'm saying is, there's things that happen in Acts that are later fleshed out in the letters of the New Testament. I think the thing about prophets and women serving as prophets may be something happening to some degree, and I think it's a very limited degree. And the old, this is not the norm, though it does obviously happen. That, so it obviously happens, it's not the norm, but now later through the history of the New Testament, the development of the church, as the scripture is being inspired by God, further clarifications, like on who, like qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers, and women prophecy is fleshed out as the history of the church continues and the letters to the churches are written under the inspiration of the Spirit. Again, what I think is clear in Acts, it is a book of transitions. That's one of the things in the Bible, that's one of the things, while you read it, there's different, there's things going on there that don't seem to be the norm. Yeah, that's great questions. Anything else? Okay, well, I love you. Uh, you don't have to, I mean, this is just, this is one where we want to keep up the conversation. Uh, again, I, I'm profoundly thankful for the women God's used in my life. Uh, the, the, the best educators I had in middle school were women. Awesome, amazing women um, who I'm incredibly thankful for. Uh, Danny Aiken, if you talk to Danny Aiken, who's president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Danny Aiken, who I think is a great Bible expositor, and you ask him who are the most influential Christians in your life, the first ones he mentions will be women. One of which are the women that he had in children's ministry that took care of him in the church as a child who taught him the gospel first, which he subsequently believed. So here's a president of a seminary, and I think a great Bible expositor, who would state it's women early in my life that had a profound effect on me 
because of their service in the church. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus that the gospel is clear that we're saved through faith in him. Thank you for the women here tonight. I just pray you'd use them in the church to edify the body. I pray you'd give us wisdom and grace and patience as we study your word. I pray, God, your spirit would give us understanding and we'd seek to order our steps, order our lives, and order our church according to your word. God, that you would be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen.